Good morning and welcome again. I'm going to uh, start and talk about my age right at the outset, which is something that I don't usually like to do. But about a month, month and a half ago, I turned 44. So even if I want to try to deny being middle-aged, I have to admit I'm middle-aged. And uh, part of that, I've been reading a book called Halftime, and it's about, a, it's about how, to, how to take a, a pause and reflect um, roughly, and none of us know how long our life is, but in the 40-year-old zone, just evaluate what has God done and where you're at, and uh, it's been a very helpful book. In the book, the author um, goes to see an advisor. He and his wife are trying to put together what God might be calling them to for the second half of their life. And so they're laying out all of this stuff. They're talking about their hopes and their dreams and everything they've done, and they just spent hours. And the advisor was not a believer, by the way. And he listened to the guy who was a believer, and after a while he stopped him, and he tells him, sir, you're going to have to tell me what you want in your box. And he goes on to say that all of us have a box, and what he's actually describing is our heart. And he said, the way that the box works, it's the main part of your life. It's the wellspring of your life. It's, it's the most important thing in your life. It's where everything else comes out of. And you've got all of this stuff out here in front of me, and I'll help you put a plan together, but I need to know what you're going to put in your box. And I've listened to you, and I don't know if God or money is going in your box. And so the man, the believer, was very convicted listening to the unbeliever tell him. And he said, you know what? He's exactly right. I do have to decide what's going to go in my box. Is it going to be God or money? And the book, uh, he chose God, and the book goes on to just describe um, what does it look like when God is at the core of our heart, the most important thing, the wellspring of our heart. So that's part of the, uh, the background for the sermon. The other one, um, recently, I don't know, maybe a month or two, now, when I have devotions, I like to just kind of stop, and I can't remember everything that I read. I, maybe you all are better than I am, but if I can remember one phrase or one idea from the day, I found that really helpful to be thinking about. And so there was one phrase in the book of 2 Corinthians that jumped out at me, and it was the phrase about not being swayed from the simplicity of Jesus, that is, in Jesus and I just realized that that's what I need and what I want for my life is the simplicity of Jesus and all of the other complexities of life. The things that pull us can be put in their proper place by the simplicity of Christ. So um, just a little bit of an outline. I want to look at several scriptures this morning that have to do with what happens when we have a divided heart. So the challenge was very clear What's in your box? You can only put one thing. So I want to look at, at scriptures that talk about what happens if we're unclear or divided. And then I want to look at an Old Testament story that gives us an example of the tragedy, actually, of a divided heart. And then end um, with, with the New Testament, um, just what I think is very hopeful of where we go from here uh, looking at the gospel. So you are welcome to turn in your Bible to the scriptures. Um, I will put them on the screen as well. And I just want to read the passage that got, that got my attention. And this is going to be the first of four that we look at, again, dealing with the topic of what happens when our heart is divided. Um, and I, I pray that God speaks to you as we, as we go through this. So in 2 Corinthians 
uh, 11. A little bit of background here. Paul had, had went and there's established a church, but the church started doubting Paul because he had went through all these hardships, and false teachers came in and said, well, if he's a real apostle, he wouldn't be going through all these hard things and was, was pulling them away with that false teaching. So 2 Corinthians 11, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. So he's warning them that they, he's worried that they're going to be pulled away from the simplicity of, of following Christ. Uh, and then in the King James, it just reads this way, that they might be corrupted from the simplicity. So early on in this passage, the word picture is there that for those of us who are born again, we are, we are betrothed or we're engaged to Jesus. And, and our, our whole life, our heart belongs to him alone. And, and then he's saying that he's worried that um, as the serpent deceived Eve, that maybe they were going to get pulled away from the simplicity that is in, in Christ. So I was really intrigued with that word um, simplicity. What does it mean? And it just simply means a singleness. So it's, it's really simple because there's only one thing. Um, it's not a lot of things. It's a single passion or a single devotion um, that belongs to Christ. And he was worried that, that Satan was going to tempt them and get them, get them pulled astray. The word there, um, though, for, uh, where it talks about being led astray... It's not just a little like, you know, we're going on the path and we get a little bit off course. It's actually a really strong um, word and a strong warning, and it has the idea of like a plant that would wither away. So when Satan comes and attacks the singleness or the simplicity of us just being all of our passion or life centered around Christ, when we let that get pulled away, it actually has a devastating effect of just of withering. And our life is not what it should be. I read a, actually a really tragic and sad story um, recently. This is a picture of Geraldine Largay. And she had a kind of almost a lifelong dream of hiking the Appalachian Trail. Her husband was not into it, but decided he was going to support her in it. And so she went, and she was somewhere in Maine. And there was a, a certain day where she decided she needed to use the restroom. She was going to go off the Appalachian Trail use the restroom, and get right back on the trail. Well, the horrible thing is she got disoriented and got into the woods, and she survived, actually, for 26 days. There were all kinds of rescue um, parties out looking for her, and it's tragic. They came within about 100 yards of where she was, and she, if you, if you piece together the story, she got, got confused, looped back around, and came within, I think, under two miles of getting back on the trail, but was totally disoriented and tried to send texts, couldn't get that to go through, journaled about this. Um, but she was so close, but just so disoriented that, um, and then eventually they found her campsite and her journals and things two years later um, after the fact. And I read that, it's just a haunting story, but it is a picture of what, of what Satan is trying to get us to do, to just 
get us off of sincere and just simple devotion and love for Christ, and then we end up um, disoriented and ending up in places that we never imagined. Um, so that is um, the simplicity that is in Christ. Our focus needs to be just fully on and entirely on Christ. So I want to just share four things that I observe about a divided heart um, as we go through this. So the first one is a divided heart is Satan's goal for every Christian. So a divided heart is Satan's goal for every Christian. And the bad news is Satan is just as sinister as he was in the garden. Um, he, is, he has not changed. He's the father of lies. He is out to kill, to steal, and to destroy. So we do not need to live in fear of him, but we must live very alertly. So the goal, Satan's goal for every Christian is a divided heart. All right, I'd uh, like to invite your attention to Matthew 6. And again, a lot of these scriptures um, are going to be fairly familiar passages here. But just thinking through the idea of, of a divided heart. <clears throat> Do not lay up for, your, for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we need to be clear, Jesus wants us to have treasure, but he doesn't want us to have treasure that's going to be destroyed. He wants it to be in heaven. And then in verse 21, there's an unbreakable link between our treasure and our heart. No matter how hard we try, our heart follows our treasure. You, it's like it's a trailer that's hooked up, and you can't unhitch it. Um, our heart will follow our treasure. Then he goes on and has some unique verses here that can be a little hard to understand. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So what is he talking about when he talks about our eye being bad? And as I would read this, I would um, understand it to be just the outlook of our heart. What is our heart focused on? So he says, if the eye is the lamp or the vision of the body, and if your eye is healthy, does anybody know what the King James says instead of healthy? The eye is single. What does the, why would he use the word single? It's the exact root word that I had referenced in Corinthians. So if the eye is focused on one thing, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye holds in it, and, and that's what it means to be single. It's just, it's straightforward. There's nothing to hide. It's not complicated. It's not folded all these different directions. Our eye is just focused on, on one thing. I don't know if, you're, if any other men are like me, but when I go church shopping, I just hope that they hang them on hangers and don't have them on piles. Because if I'm going to buy it, I'm going to open it up and look at it. Then I have to stand there. Am I going to try to figure out this complicated maneuver to fold it? And even if I do 10 minutes, it's going to look bad anyway. And, I, and that's kind of a picture of just a complicated mess of folding. And Jesus is saying, you know, your eye just needs to be straightforward. There's nothing to hide. There's no folds. It's just focused on me. And then, then you have light and your body can be good. The whole body can, uh, can be good. And then he goes on to say, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
So the picture here is of a slave, and I mean, we know this to be true. As a slave, I couldn't say, you know what, I am available to do anything you want me to do anytime, and I'm also available to do anything you want me to do, and somebody else. We, we just can't. We can only serve one thing. In the end, uh, we end up, we can only serve one thing. And Jesus makes that very clear. And so I don't know when you think about a divided heart. Here the, the warning is very clear about money. But it's, it can be anything that divides our heart. Um, I brought along uh, just some very simple little decorations from the house. And they're just, they're just kind of these heavy decorative balls. And basically, as I think about it, you know, we have room. We can hold one thing in our heart dear. And for a while, we may feel like we can hold two, or maybe, maybe we can fit three in there, but it's not going to work long. And Jesus is saying, you know what, you can really only hold one thing as your most dear thing. It's delusional to think that you can hold more than one as your most dear. And so, what is the one thing uh, that will go in my box? One of the things that I, I found interesting and in just reading recently and thinking about this, um, today we talk about our priorities. Um, we have you know, three different priorities or four different priorities. The word priority is actually a noun that just means the first ranking thing. And there wasn't even a plural version of the word until recently, until in the 1900s. So for many years, people didn't even try to talk about priorities. You had a priority. It was the most important thing. Um, so anyway, I don't want to go too far with that. It is just a word thing. Um, but I do think it speaks to the culture in which we live, that, well, we can try to do everything here and kind of have everything be important, and then nothing is. All right, so the second thing that a divided heart will do is that we cannot love the Lord fully with a divided heart. So a divided heart is Satan's goal for every Christian, and we cannot love the Lord fully. Psalm 86 uh, gives us the third thing. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nation, nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. So at the end of verse 11, where David is praying to God and wants to fear his name, what he's saying is, unite my heart. And to me, it speaks of the reality that our hearts are prone to be pulled this direction, that direction. All, you know, we have many things that, we're, that we can worry about. But to fear God, God needs to unite that, bring it all together to where God is the one thing that we're focused on and the one thing that has our undivided, um, undivided attention and devotion. So our heart is tended to be pulled in many different directions. Again, what is it for you that tends to scatter your heart? What are the things that, that will divide your heart? So the third thing here is a divided heart will not walk in the fear of the Lord. All right, then I'd like to look at Mark 4. And this is the parable of the sower where a sower goes out to sow seed. The seed represents the Word of God, and it lands on four different types of soil. I'm only going to read Jesus explaining the, the parable. Um, and it's interesting, this is in three different books of the Bible. It's not in John. Um, 
But I'll read it here and then just pull together uh, how it's worded in the other Gospels. The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire, desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. So the first seed that's there is on hard ground. Birds come in and snatch it away. Uh, the other takes a little bit of root, but it, it doesn't have roots and it, it quickly withers away. But the last seed is very sobering because it actually grows. And I believe if we're here today, God's word has taken root in our heart. So it actually grows, and what ends up happening? It gets choked out by weeds. And we all know how weeds act, right? They, they tend to move in and take over. And somehow it seems like or feels like they actually can grow faster than the stuff that you're trying to grow. So weeds come in, and they take over, and it actually, the end result here is that it, uh, it chokes the word so that it proves unfruitful. And the three things that Jesus wars, uh, warns us of here are the cares of the world. So we all have things that we're concerned about. We can't, can't get away from that. Um, but the invitation from Christ is to give those to him and to let him care for, uh, care for us. Then he talks about the deceitfulness of riches. I think we need to think about this, especially in the U.S., where when income rises, um, often our lifestyle rises. And one way to, to think about this is the term lifestyle creep. So what, you know, what do we really need? So deceitfulness of riches is one. And then very broadly, the desire for other things. Uh, Luke describes this as the pleasures of life. And then in the end, the word becomes unfruitful. And it's just such a tragedy that the word does not mature and bear fruit the way God designed it to. Um, soon after Nicole and I had gotten married, we went out to California, and we would go out walking. We spent, I don't know, a week or something out there, and we would go by these lemon trees. And we're like, well, that's really awesome. Like, we'd want a lemon tree at home. So I researched it, and you know, sure enough, you can have a lemon tree in your house. So I bought this little lemon tree and put it in the corner of our kitchen, and me not being a green thumb, the, the tree survived, but the thing never, ever produced any lemons, and it barely grew. And we put it inside and outside, and eventually, didn't we just get tired of it? I forget if it died or if we just threw it away, but my dreams of having this cool little lemon tree did not come to fruition. It was just kind of an ugly little plant in the corner of our kitchen. And obviously, none of us want our lives to be that way. We want it to produce the fruit that God, God has for us, and so that's where we need to guard our heart. Again, I don't know what it is that distracts you, but what are the things that tend to divide your heart? Um, Luke tells us, as for the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So I love that, that we can hold it fast in our heart and then bearing fruit uh, takes patience. So the last point here of a divided heart is a divided heart will not produce godly fruit. 
So here's, here's a pretty clear warning um, in Scripture of what happens when, when we try to live with a divided heart. And I know that none of us want to do that. But we need the Lord to show us where, if there's areas where, where we're trying to live with a divided heart. And these, the issues can be different as we go, through, um, go throughout our life. I want to shift gears here and just talk a little bit about a, an example in the Old Testament um, of somebody who tried to live with a de- divided heart with pretty clear results. And then, like I said, circle back to the gospel. But um, I was thinking of the life of Solomon for somebody who tried to live with a divided heart. And a little bit of background to the story. So when, when the children of Israel were coming into the promised land, when they were in the desert, they worshiped God um, at the tabernacle that was right in the middle of the camp. So very clear, everybody gathered around. And God said, when you get into the promised land, I'm going to show you where you worship. There's going to be a place I pick. That's where you worship. And by the way, don't uh, leave the high places that these other nations have left. Don't leave them there. You are to destroy them entirely. I'll show you where you go to worship. And so uh, when they got got to um, the promised land, Somehow, what do you know? The children of Israel leave the high places there. And we, by the time Solomon comes along, the tabernacle is in one place. The Ark of the Covenant is another. And all of Israel is worshiping in the high places. So they're maybe not falling into idol worship, but they're trying to worship God where God had said, I'll choose the place um, of where you are to worship. So that's, that's where we pick up the story with Solomon. Um, we are told of Solomon that among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by God, his God, and God made him king over Israel. And I could talk for the rest of the sermon about all of the amazing things that happened when Solomon followed God, but we'll kind of, we'll kind of jump over that and get right into the start of his, um, of his, his kingdom. In chapter, the end of chapter 2, the kingdom is established in the hand of Solomon, Solomon makes a marriage alliance with Egypt, which we'll talk more about. But I want you to notice this. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. And God had said, Solomon, you, you are the one to build this temple. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statues of David, statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place, Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. So he clearly loves the Lord, but he is still going to the high places to offer. And this is where we first start seeing a a divided heart. So I just want to walk through his life a little bit and look at what happens when you try to live with a divided heart, even if it seems small. Um, So God had told him he's supposed to build the temple. In the end of chapter 6, he does finish building this. And we are told that he, he was seven years in building it. He finished all its parts. And we don't know for sure what it looks like, but here's a drawing of, of uh, the inside of it. Um, and it is, it is largely the scale. So you can see people standing here and here, and it's, you know, it's overlaid with gold, and it's, it's an amazing temple to God. Then we start getting a hint of, of Solomon's divided heart here in this passage. So I just told you this, that he finished building it. He was seven years in building it. Then the next chapter starts. Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished his entire house. So let's just call time out there. So he builds the temple, 
but he actually doesn't build the furnishings for the temple. So he builds the temple, and he lets it sit, and then he spends the next 13 years building his house and his wife from Egypt's house. And did you catch what he says here? And he finished his entire house. So, so the temple is standing here finished, but not ready to use for 13 years while he builds his house, while Israel is still using the high places that they were told not to use. And I really think this is a hint of a divided heart starting already. And then goes on to talk about all that he had, all that he had done. And then, in the end of that chapter, then he finally furnishes the temple. And, and God is, I mean, God honors that. And God's presence fills the temple. God meets him there. And so Solomon prays, and God appears to him again. And here's what God tells him. I'm not going to read all of this, but just in, in verse 4. Um, I've heard your prayer. As for you, if you will walk before me as David, your father, walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I've commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then, and he goes on with all of these promises. And the word here is integrity, which is the root word for integer or a whole number, not a fraction. So God is saying, what I'm really after here is all of your heart. And if you'll do that, um, then you will always, um, you and your descendants will always be king. All right, um, I want to go to Deuteronomy 17. And again, I'll, I'll tell you what's here. You don't have to read all of this. This is God's commands for when, when Israel was going to have a king. He said, I want the king to write down a copy of the law by hand, keep it for himself, and then here's the things that kings need to watch out for. Deuteronomy 17, verse 16, as a king, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So this is what God has laid out for the king of Israel. As you reflect on Solomon's life, rather than describing what he stayed away from, does this actually kind of describe what he did? In the end, Solomon pursues all of these things. Um, and again, I won't, yeah, I won't read all of the passages. We're told that he had 40,000 stalls of horses, um, we are told that every year he had gold coming in to the tune of 666 talents. If you're wondering how much that is, a talent is around 75 pounds. So let's do the math, like 50,000 pounds of gold a year. Everything in his house was made of gold. And God had told him as king, you need to be aware of acquiring too much silver and gold. And silver wasn't even valuable at that point. And then uh, what he is sadly famous for. Um, I referenced this. So he started his reign by making a marriage alliance uh, with Pharaoh, the king of, um, of Egypt. Also, God had warned against looking to Egypt for protection. And, Pharaoh, um, and Solomon goes there. And then he goes on to say, now, now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Uh, and in the end, it says that Solomon clung to those in love. He had 700 wives who were princes and 300 concubines. And God had said, if, if you do this, they're going to turn your heart away after other gods. And it goes on to say, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away, his heart after other gods. 
and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. And I had left out part of the verses of Nehemiah. I left out the first part and the last part. I'll finish the verse now. Nehemiah said, Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. So backing up uh, here, just thinking about Solomon. So in the end, in his old age, the Bible is clear that his wives turns his heart from God. But I think it's also clear that Solomon was trying to live with a divided heart for a very long time. And in the end, we can't do that over the long haul. Um, And I also want to just point out here that this happened to Solomon when he was old. And just want to encourage us as a church um, to remember those that are older among us. Being older does not necessarily mean that life is easier or that there are fewer temptations. Um, And so again, I don't want us to live in fear of this, but we have to be very vigilant. And uh, let's let's pray for each other, but also for those that are, are older here at church. So when I look at Solomon's life, and I stand back and look at the list of a divided heart here, it seems true that this is what a divided heart does. Now, the thing about Solomon's life is we can't relate to the things that divided his heart. And we're not going to get pulled away by 50,000 pounds of gold. Um, but again, I just ask, like, what, what is it in your life for your stage where you're at now that may pull your heart to be divided? What is it that makes it difficult to say, you know what, above all else, God is in my box, and that's it. And I don't know what it is for you that, that, makes, that, um, that makes that hard, but just asking that you allow the Lord to look at your heart and, and ask, is it God's alone with a single purpose, or do you feel the pool for a, for a divided heart? Um, in closing, just want to look a little bit at uh, the New Testament and in light of the gospel. The Christian life is not just about what we don't love. It is actually about that we are called to love God with all of our heart. We are to love Jesus with all of our heart. And he says it's the greatest commandment to love with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And out of that love, then we, then we can obey him. So it's not just a thing a list of things we stay away from, but it's, it's actually the love of Christ that fills our hearts and allows our, our heart to be united. Um, so I just want to invite your attention to Colossians 2 and, and quickly go, go through this as we think about not having a divided heart. I'm not going to read this part of the, pa- of the chapter, but it's, it's saying two times here, I don't want you to get pulled away. I want you to take roots in, roots in Christ. So let's just think about who Christ is It says, for in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. So the whole fullness of God came to us in bodily form, and he chose to die on our behalf. He was buried, he he rose again, he conquered death. The whole fullness of of God dwelt in Jesus in the bodily form. Do you know what it goes on to say? And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. So when we think about not having a divided heart, we have Jesus who is above everything. 
and he's filling us. It says that if we are in Christ, that we're filled with him. He's the, re- he's the head, he is the rule of all authority. And the passage goes on to say, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So we have been circumcised. We've been, um, it's a mark of a covenant relationship with God. And we have died with him. And we're actually raised again in newness of life by the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And he goes on to say, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So we were dead and we're now alive. And when we think about loving God and letting his love fill our heart, this is what we're talking about. Um, And this... I feel like we should talk all morning on, but we won't. I can't do this justice of who Christ is. And I just want to be clear as we think about not having a divided heart, um, again, that it comes back to loving God, and we love him because he loved us first. We're responding to God, that he loved us, and so then we respond. And out of that love, we obey. We obey because we love God. We don't obey to love God. And then, then there's fruits that come out of our life. Um, and so there's tremendous hope in Christ to, um, to not live with a divided heart. So I just want to, um, again, ask you this morning, are there things that are tugging your heart, leaving it feeling divided? If so, what are they? And are you willing to talk to the Lord about them and allow him to carry those things and come back to, you know what, above all else, I want to love you, and I just want you um, above everything else, you are my single desire that I'm that I'm after. Um, I invite you to stand. Darren is going to lead us in a song, and uh, then I will close in prayer um, after that. So, Darren, you want to come up and lead the song? Thank you. you can remain standing. Just want to spend a little bit of time praying, asking God to search your heart, and then also thanking God for the food that's downstairs. There's lunch. Everyone is invited um, to stay and fellowship together. So. Um, I'm going to pray. I'll leave it silent a bit at the start and just ask you to, to worship the Lord and ask him to, to look at your heart, and then I'll, I'll pray after a bit here. Father, I want to come to you now in Jesus' name. Lord, thanks for loving us. Thanks for redeeming us. And God, um, I, just, I pray that you would uh, search my heart, search all of our hearts. Um, God, we want to love you above all else. Um, there are so many things that we we choose to love or could love or that could distract us from you. And God, I pray that in your grace, you would convict us. And uh, we want to repent of those things and just love you fully, God. And we want our lives to reflect you and, and just the, the glory of your redeeming love. Um, so help us to live uh, in your love for us. And then in turn, just to, would you fill our hearts with love for you entirely? Um, God, I just pray that uh, the words that would be from you would be Establish in good soil, and if there's things that aren't of you, would you, um, in your kindness, blow that away? And Lord, thanks that we can be gathered like this, um, with a, a group like this. Lord, we thank you for the food that's downstairs. 
uh, we receive it as a gift from you, and I ask that our time together would be enjoyable and encouraging, and I just commit it to you, Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.